This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. (laughs) The only things truly yours are those that are entirely up to you. Everything else is on loan from the universe. Valeria Tellis interviews Professor Massimo Pigliucci, the author of A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. Professor Pigliucci has a PhD in environmental biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. He currently is the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. His research interests include the philosophy of science, the relationship between science and philosophy, the nature of pseudoscience, and the practical philosophy of Stoicism. Professor Pigliucci has been elected Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science for Fundamental Studies of Genotype by Environmental Interactions and for Public Defense of Evolutionary Biology from Pseudoscientific Attack. In the area of public outreach, Professor Pigliucci has published in national and international outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. He is a fellow of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and a contributing editor to Skeptical Inquirer. He blogs on practical philosophy at Patreon and Medium. At last count, Professor Pigliucci has published 180 technical papers in science and philosophy. He is also the author or editor of 14 books, including the best-selling How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life, Basic Books. Other titles include Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, University of Chicago Press, and A Field Guide to a Happy Life, Basic Books. Meet Professor Massimo at figsinwinter.blog. Here's the interview with Professor Massimo Pigliucci. In your own words, who is Professor Massimo Pigliucci? Massimo Pigliucci is uh, Italian, uh, grew up in Rome, uh, moved to the United States to pursue his academic career initially in biology, and then uh, went through a little bit of a midlife life crisis and switched academic fields to philosophy and now teaches at uh, the City University of New York. Uh, is interested in uh, Stoic philosophy as not just from a theoretical perspective, but as a way of, of living a uh, meaningful life. 
And um, other than that, lives in Brooklyn, New York. My second official question for you had to be this one. What is life to you, Massimo? Not the meaning of life, but what is life? Oh, for me, from that perspective, I approach the the question as a scientist. For me, life is one of a number of natural processes uh, that, as far as we know, occurs on Earth. It probably occurs elsewhere in the universe, although we haven't found it yet. But then again, we haven't visited that many places. (laughs) 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 So it's fundamentally a natural process. Uh, In fact, I consider the the universe itself to be a natural process or a dynamic set of natural processes of which life is just one subset, very interesting subset, very complex subset. But uh, that's the way I think about life. You talk about the universe in your book. You mentioned that word a lot. For you, would that be a type of God, in a way, when you mention the word universe? Does it no, God? I, I try to stay away from the word God because it has too many meanings to the different, too, too many people. And uh, so for me, the universe is just what is, everything that is. And now if you want to attach certain characteristics to it, then again, I will start with the characteristics that uh, come to mind as a scientist. So it's a, it, the universe is a physical, it's an ensemble of physical objects. They're, it's characterized by uh, certain patterns that we refer to as laws of nature. And we try to understand uh, as best as we can. Uh, that 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 would be my approach. Yeah, I would stay, stay away from the word God because it has too many different connotations uh, that get you into all sorts of different discussions that I um, wouldn't know how to contribute meaningfully. <laughs> yeah, to. yeah, I understand. Uh, from your perspective, do you see a beginning for the universe or for life itself? Is there such a thing as a starting point or this is the complete unknown? As far as we know, and of course, uh, what we know, what we think we know, it changes uh, because we get, you know, better at at, at uh, investigating certain questions. But so far as we know, the universe began about 13 billion years ago, and as far as life is concerned, life on Earth again, uh, it began about four and a half billion years ago. Um, it may have started earlier somewhere else, but again, we have we have no idea. The purpose of life, do you see one? Is there a purpose to the human experience? Yeah, that's, a, that's an intricate, intricate question because uh, it depends on what one means by it. And let me, let me put it this way. If, yeah. if the question is, is there a sort of universal or external meaning to life, meaning uh, in the sense that, that uh, you know, there, there is a universal, unique answer to the question, then I think the answer is no. Right. Life itself is, does not have meaning because meaning comes from sentient beings that think about stuff. Mm, and since I right. don't think that life was created by a sentient being thinking about stuff, then right. <laughs> life doesn't have meaning. Yeah. However... We do generate our meaning internally. That is, each one of us does find meaning in life. We construct that meaning as a result of our experiences, our choices, our values, and everything else. So I would say that meaning in life is kind of an inside job. It comes from Mm. us. It's not imposed from the outside. And the meaning of death, what does it mean to you um, to lose the body? Is there any meaning there for you? I would love to hear from you more about Epictetus and how you discovered him. So let's start with death. Uh, again, there the answer from my perspective is uh, comes from my 
uh, scientific background, death is yet another natural process. Yeah. Uh, and it is, in fact, as far as we can tell, it's necessary. So it's a necessary prerequisite for life continuation. If, if mm. uh, things and people, animals and plants and people didn't die, then there wouldn't be space on Earth for uh, new people and plants and animals. So death is kind of part of, of this cycle. Uh, it, in terms of meaning, again, intrinsically, it doesn't have any meaning. It's just a cessation of a particular process uh, in a particular uh, being. Uh, but once again, we generate meaning for, uh, 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 for that particular process as well, just like we generate meaning for life. And from a Stoic perspective, since we're going to talk about the Stoics in a second, death is actually one of the major things, if not the major thing, that actually makes life meaningful. Because... Once you realize as a sentient being who thinks about stuff, once you realize that you're mortal, once you realize that you're, you're going to die one of these days, then every moment, every choice uh, that you make in your life, every moment you live your life becomes meaningful because you know that that might be the, the last one. That might be the last time that you uh, taste that, that fruit or the, the last time that you go on a, on a trip or the last time you read a book and so on and so forth. Now, as far as Epictetus is concerned, so Epictetus was a really interesting character. He was a early second century Stoic philosopher, uh, Roman, uh, although he was not born in Rome. And, you know, at the time, anybody who lived within the Roman Empire, the vast confines of the Roman Empire was a Roman. Uh, Epictetus was born a slave in uh, um, Hierapolis, which is in modern-day Pamukkale in western uh, Turkey. He was acquired by the personal secretary of the Emperor Nero and brought to Rome. In fact, we don't know Epictetus's real name. Epictetus simply means acquired in, in Greek. So we, we know he was a slave. But he was uh, brought to Rome and he was given an education. Apparently he was, he was bright. And eventually he was freed uh, by his master and he started making a living on his own. And he started teaching philosophy, particularly Stoic philosophy. Uh, now, the Stoics have this, uh, had especially at the time, this uh, penchant for speaking truth to power, as we would say today. And power doesn't usually like truth to be spoken to. So a, a later emperor, Domitian, uh, just kicked out um, uh, Epictetus and a number of other philosophers from Rome and sent them into exile. In fact, he killed a number of them, but he sent some into exile because they were getting a little too annoying uh, for his own, for his taste. So, but the joke eventually was on the emperor because Epictetus moved to Nicopolis, which is a town that still exists today on the northwestern coast of Greece. He reestablished his school there and the school became uh, the most attractive, most famous uh, school of the early part of the second century. Uh, everybody who was anybody in Rome would send their kids to uh, teach, to, to um, learn from Epictetus. And a later emperor, Adrian, became a frequent visitor. So, so Epictetus was really interesting uh, character. How I discovered him, it's an interesting story. So I mentioned earlier on my little uh, midlife crisis, which uh, a few years ago, which brought me to do a kind of a little bit of a systematic study of different kinds of philosophies of life uh, to see if I could find something that actually that clicked with, with, uh, with my own way of thinking and my own way of being. And I was in the middle of this search uh, when I, and I, I read, you know, I read about Buddhism, I read about other philosophers in the Western tradition, and um, I was still looking. And then one day on Twitter, I saw this thing that said, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate the Stoics? Because at the time, 
I was under the fairly common misconception that the Stoics are like Mr. Spock from Star Trek, uh, you know, going around with, with a stiff upper lip and suppressing emotions and kind of stuff. And I said, you know, who, who would want to live that kind of life? With all due respect to Spock, who is my favorite character in Star Trek, still, I wouldn't want to be one of those. Turns out, however, that uh, stoicism is quite different from the from the caricature of a stiff upper lip, and uh, so I, I I thought, okay, well let's let's take a look. And uh, the first thing that I did was I downloaded a uh, two books by Epictetus, the Discourses and the Enchiridion or Manual for Life. And as soon as I started reading them, uh, I was hooked. I mean, the, one of the very first things that I read by Epictetus was this uh, story about how uh, several of his fr Stoic friends opposed what they saw as the tyranny of uh, a number of emperors, N Nero, Vespasian, and Domitian in particular, and some of them, as I said before, lost their lives, others were sent into exile. But then, so he tells his story to, you know, to, to say basically to his students that, you know, it's important that you make decisions about what to do and what not to do in life. It's important that you do something that is meaningful, et cetera, et cetera. But then he says, by the way, the time of lunch has arrived and it looks like we're not going to die today. So let's think about where to go for lunch. And I thought, wow, look at this guy. He just went on for, you know, a few minutes talking about really heavy stuff. And then all of a sudden it turns pretty jovial and pretty, you know, he has a sense of humor. In fact, sometimes bordering on sarcasm. And so I was sucked. Uh, I, I kind of heard the click in my brain. I said, ah, this, this is a guy that needs to be studied more carefully. That's interesting how we look for things that resonate with us somehow, the way we have already kind of understood life in a way that we can't explain. But then, yeah, you came across him. And, but I have a question for you. You mentioned earlier the idea of power and no one wants to be questioned. Um, whoever holds the power, truth and power, they don't go along per se. From your perspective, how would you define true power, Massimo? Oh, that's an interesting question because the, the, that little modifier, true power, yeah. uh, is is important. So most people, I guess, I would I would guess, understand power as the ability to uh, coerce other people or to make decisions that uh, that uh, that other people then follow, right? So so yeah. if we if you have political power or military power, you know something like that, or a power psychological even power over other people, basically you have other people do your bidding. Yeah. Now, the Stoics think that that is illusory. They, they think mm. that that's, that's really not power at all. Mm. In fact, weak people want to coerce others mm. uh, right. to, do, uh, right. to do their bidding. That true power uh, lies in self-control. It lies in self-knowledge. It lies into reflecting on who you are, wh who you want to be, and then acting accordingly. That's power. Uh, whether it affects other people or not, it's entirely irrelevant. It's not, it's not the point of power, at least according to the Stoics. And it's, I, I admit that it's an unusual way of looking at things, but, um, but I find it intriguing. Yeah, me too. And I actually love that idea, especially of self-knowledge. And that's another question for you. How do we get that understanding? How do we know when we know ourselves? Are there some signs? What would it be like to know oneself? Well, for one thing, I think that that is a process that we should uh, ideally engage in throughout our life. And you really never get there because mm. there is no there. Right. Because the right. self, right. at least according to the Stoics mm. uh, and, other, and, and a number of other traditions, actually, uh, the yeah. Buddhists in this case agree with right. the Stoics. Yeah. The self is not a stable entity. It's not a... It's not a 
uh, something that is unchangeable. Uh, it's mm. a it's a dynamic process itself. Mm. In fact, again, uh, I think that from a metaphysical perspective, everything in the universe is a set of dynamic processes. So I don't right. see why the self would be an exception. Right. So the self changes all the time, which means that you're really never knowing yourself because mm. you're knowing and you're, you you keep going after something that changes right. constantly. Right. However, knowing yourself is accomplished by a number of routes, according to the Stoics. One of them is self-analysis. So the Stoics thought that you should, for instance, at the end of the day, you should uh, take a few minutes, pick a quiet corner in your in your house, and uh, and reflect on the following questions: What did I do today that was that didn't go well? What what was it? What did I do wrong? In other words, what did I do right, and what could I have done? differently, better. And in, in constantly asking yourself these three questions, you learn a lot about yourself you, you, because you, you ask questions like, well, what did I, why did I, you know, get angry that, in that situation or why did I do this and, and, so, and so on. However, uh, analytical, so analysis, self-analysis of that kind is, although it's important according to the Stoics, it's not enough because we do have a tendency to rationalize. We have a tendency to sort of smooth things over uh, with ourselves to give us a, a pat on the back uh, when we not necessarily deserve it. So they thought that there are at least two other things you can you can do and you should do. And by the way, I should I should add that there is some serious evidence from modern cognitive science that all three of these approaches uh, actually do help in in the way in which the Stoics sort of uh, suggest. The second approach is what I sometimes call it's an exercise, is a mental exercise called the sage of the sh on the shoulder. Basically, uh, th the notion is that whenever you do something, you're you're about to make a decision or or, or do something important, you should imagine that a person that you have that you admire is literally sitting on your shoulders and looking over what you're doing. Nice. And the notion there is that you you would therefore ask yourself, well, would that person do what I'm about to do? What what you know? How would he actually act? Now, other traditions have a similar things. If you go, especially in parts of the, uh, the American South, you will find people that go around with a bracelet with the acronym JJ uh, WWJD. What would mm -hmm. Jesus do, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, this, the, that's the, the notion is similar. Uh, it yeah. doesn't have to be Jesus. It could be Socrates. This could be your grandfather. You know, any any anyone that uh, that you admire. So that's the second technique: uh, self critical self analysis and the sage on the shoulder. And then the third exercise, the third thing. Uh, I guess it's not an exercise yeah. really, but the third practice that the Stoics you know strongly suggest in order to get to know yourself is to cultivate deep friendships. Mm. Because a, a deep friend, a good and you know a really good friend, not 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 the kind of friend you get on Facebook, you know, but that's <laughs> but a real right. friend. Um, that is a person that presumably a is has your own welfare at at heart, right? So yeah. because and vice versa, of course, you have his or her welfare at heart, and also she's not afraid to occasionally, at least, speaking clearly to you, speaking frankly to you, and say, you know. What you just did was not a, not kosher. That was that was not a good thing. Or maybe you wanted to rethink that sort of stuff. It's very yeah. difficult to develop a friendship. It's rare to develop a friendship of that sort. But the Stoics thought that uh, it's absolutely necessary for life because that is a external point of reference, basically, that helps you uh, know yourself, helps you and improve yourself. Not only know yourself, but make yourself into a better uh, human being. One of the things that I 
really, um, I guess, looked for my entire existence here was freedom, liberation from seeking, from practices. My question to you is, what is your idea in understanding of what freedom is? Now, that's another very good question. So a lot of people understand freedom, seem to understand freedom as uh, freedom to do something, right? Yeah, so I yeah. want to be free to do this right. or that or the other. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a fairly reasonable understanding. You know, you know if you're, let's right. say you live in a country where you cannot have a passport, then you're not free to travel. So right. And right. one of your freedoms is, uh, uh-huh. is, is curtailed. However, the Stoics had an interesting view, a very, very unusual view of freedom, which, which I really very much like. In fact, particularly particularly Epictetus, uh, the guy that we've been talking about a little bit earlier, um, he thought that at the end of the day, the true source of freedom, the ultimate source of freedom is your own ability to make judgments, to arrive at conclusions, to arrive at certain certain decisions or, Mm. or not. Why? Well, because at the end of the day, everything we we do is the result of judgments. Mm, yeah. Judgment's not understood as judging other people. That's right. not that's not the business of the Stoics. In right. fact, the Stoics stay away from judging other people, yeah. but from yeah. judging whatever it is, your own actions and your own intentions. So, for instance, if I want to, if I say, like, um, you know, it sounds like uh, it's a, it's going to be a good idea to talk to Valeria about uh, my book and about Stoicism. That was a judgment. Right. Right, right. That was a, and, and I arrived at it by, you know, because we talked via email, because I looked you up and that sort of stuff. It's like, oh, that sounds, that sounds interesting. That's a judgment. Yeah. That judgment has consequences, right? Mm. Now, it, the two of us are spending half an hour of our lives uh, <laughs> talking to each other, right? And then other people are going to listen to this thing and, and mm. hopefully, you know, they're, they're going to be uh, influenced one way or, or the other, et cetera. So everything we do is ultimately the result of our judgments. That's why. The Stoics, mm-hmm. and in particular Epictetus, thought that the most important thing you can do is to constantly work toward improving your judgment, to arrive at better judgments. Now, Epictetus, uh, what, what does that have to do with freedom? Well, uh, Epictetus was, as I said before, a, li- a little bit radical, but he had this notion that ultimately human freedom is the freedom to exercise our judgment. And he said mm-hmm. that if you think about it, that freedom cannot be taken from you right. under any circumstances. And, and here's what he meant. It's like, of course, the obvious, the obvious exception, the obvious uh, sort of objection that, that somebody might have is like, well, what do you mean? Uh, let's say that somebody points a gun to my head and, and forces me to do something and I have no choice. And Epictetus uh, says, uh, no, you still have a choice. <laughs> uh, it just means that you value your life more than whatever it is that the person is asking you to do. But that's your choice. Even with a, a gunpoint, you still have choice. Of course, it's very difficult to exercise your choices at gunpoint, right? It's not a yeah. situation that anybody would like to be in. But his point, I think, is well taken. That is, whenever we give ourselves excuses, which we do often, we often say, oh, I had no choice. Yeah. Right. I was forced to do that. And, and mm-hmm. without even invoking the gun, the gun example, often we say, oh, I had no choice but to take the job. Yes, you did. You could have not taken the job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no choice but to do this or that or the other. It's like, of course you did. Now, mm-hmm. of course, for, for every choice, there are consequences. And so yeah. whether you do something or you don't, uh, there's going to be consequences either way. But that, for a stoic, is the ultimate source of freedom, the fact that you are ultimately responsible for your choices. Yeah, and the, the judgments. That is um, a very interesting 
and it kind of makes a lot of sense to me coming from that perspective of you think you know yourself and now there's a lot of um, improvement to do. If we, we want to be good people, live good lives, then that's what we do. That to me all, always kind of resonated as no freedom because I still have to kind of think about it too much, um, engage in so many practices to arrive where I want to arrive. And I may not anyway. So one of the things that I have been kind of uh, leaning toward more these days is the idea of unconditional love, that life is unconditioned. This is life happening. It's the unknown happening. Nobody really knows. It seems like we are controlling things, making decisions that we chose to be here now, you and I, and talk, but not really. Everything is coming from conditioning of the body, the mind, whatever it came from just kind of led to this. But it's not, there's no really no one controlling anything, but life itself flowing and doing what it does. I know it sounds extreme, <laughs> radical, <laughs> or kind of weird, but it makes sense to me. It resonates yeah. So I'm not reason. worried about something some uh, sounding uh, uh, <laughs> <Right>. weird <laughs> because, you know, lots, <laughs> lots of weird. I mean, look, uh, I have my friends in the physics department who tell me that um, nothing really exists uh, mm. other than fields uh, of energy. So mm. it's like, that, yeah. does that sound weird? That's pretty weird. Um, so weird, um, it's, not, it's not necessarily a good objection. Uh, let, mm. me, let me put it this way. Yeah. So the Stoics also thought, although they have a different take on, on, uh, on the matter, the, compared to what you just said. Yeah. But there are also some similarities there. For instance, uh, the Stoics thought that we live in a universe that is governed by a universal, as they put it, a universal web of cause and effect. That is, everything happens because something else has happened mm -hmm. or, or is happening somewhere else. That includes human beings. Mm, right. Uh, so human beings are not an exception to the laws of nature. We're just part of nature. We, right. we are, we are at, at one with nature in the sense, right. in, in the you know, literal sense that we are bits and pieces of, mm. of the cosmic, uh, the cosmic uh, nature, the yes. cosmic thing. So if that is true, then in a sense, everything that happens to us is part of a continuous flux of things. And we have uh, the illusion, as you were saying earlier, of controlling things, yeah. the illusion of being in charge. But in fact, we, 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 most of the times, in fact, maybe, maybe even all the times, we're, we're not. Right. Uh, or at the very least, the Stoics would say, at the very least, the sphere of, uh, of control that we have is much, much smaller, <laughs> yes, as people say. Much, much smaller. Uh, one of the things that, um, one of the fundamental ideas in Stoicism is the so-called dichotomy of control. And uh, the dichotomy of control is, is a concept that is found, again, in Epictetus. But perhaps uh, some of your listeners are familiar with it in the version from 20th century Christianity, which is known as the serenity prayer. Right, yeah. So the serenity prayer, which, you know, is often used in, uh, at the beginning of 12-step uh, meetings of 12-step organizations like Alcoholic Anonymous. Uh, the prayer asks God to give us the wisdom to tell the difference between what we can change and what we cannot change, the courage to change what we can, and the serenity to accept what we cannot. 
Well, that concept actually predates the Christians. Uh, and in fact, it's found both in the Buddhist tradition and in the Stoic tradition. And the Stoics would say, that's right. You, not only that, but in fact, you have to realize that there's very little you can change. <laughs> and, and you need to focus yes. on the little parts that you can affect, mm. on the little things that you can actually improve. Mm. Uh, and because a good life is the result, according again to the Stoics, is the yeah. result of actually acting where you can and then developing an attitude of equanimity, of, of serene acceptance mm. for the stuff that you cannot do anything about. Right. If you cannot do anything about it, then why why are you worrying about it? Why are you concerned? There's, there's nothing you can do, so move on and try to and try to focus on the things that you can actually do. According to Stoicism, you still have some control over yeah, life itself and ourselves. But only in the sense that uh, that we are part of it, and so we control mm. that little, the little little part that we are, but uh, but nothing else. Mm, right, that would resonate a little bit. Even that, it's really a realization. It's not coming from knowledge because I have done a lot of that before, and it never, I never understood really. I was still like trapped in the doing, in the practices, and trying to be something or get somewhere. As a the way this came to me, it's just that. This is life, and um, it's unconditional love here now. There's no control whatsoever. It's all an illusion if we think that there is control. It's liberating. It feels liberating. Well, it feels liberating, again, uh, because all of a sudden there is this, this big burden that otherwise you, uh, you carry that, oh, I need to do this and that and the other. I need to control this. I need to be in charge and all that. And, and suddenly all of that says, you know what? You're actually not in control of much. So don't worry about it. Before we end the conversation, I really want to highlight some of the sections in your book that caught my attention. So you wrote the book, A Field Guide to a Happy Life, 53 Brief Lessons for Living. Talk to me for a moment about the inspiration and the intention of writing this book, Massimo. So the book is essentially a 21st century update of uh, Epictetus's book called the Enchiridion, the, the manual. Uh, Epictetus didn't really write anything, as it turns out. Uh, he only lectured people, he talked to his students, but he didn't write anything. But one of his brilliant students, a guy named Arian of Nicomedia, wrote down a bunch of things that Epictetus wrote, and that's how we know what he, what he was talking about. One of these things that Arian wrote down is called the manual, and it is made of 53 short sections, each one of which encapsulates a fundamental uh, lesson for life uh, from a Stoic perspective. Now, as I said, Epictetus has had a major impact on my own life. Uh, you know, it, it has literally changed my life, I hope, hopefully for the better. And so, uh, but, but his name is not well known to the general public. It used to be, he was actually one of the most famous philosophers up until the 19th century. Uh, just consider, for instance, that all of the American founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Ben, ben Franklin, all of them had a copy of the manual, of Epictetus' manual in their libraries. So he was actually a household name. But in the 20th and 21st centuries, kind of, you know, very few people uh, have heard of him. And so one goal of the book was uh, to make the name of Epictetus, contribute to making the name of Epictetus again a household name because I think there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of things that are interesting in what he says. At the same time, however, and this is the second goal of the book, uh, you know, Epictetus was alive 18th, 19th centuries ago. And so, of course, he had a worldview that in part at least reflected uh, 
the times, right? You know, he's, he was an ancient Roman. <laughs> and we live in the 21st century, so things are different. So just in the same way in which nobody today is a Buddhist in the way in which people were Buddhist two and a half millennia ago, or nobody is a Christian in the way people were Christians 2,000 years ago, I think nobody can be a Stoic today in the way in which Epictetus was a Stoic. Uh, two millennia ago. So, so there are these two goals of the book. It's, it's essentially a rewriting of the manual, updating it to the 21st century. And, and the two goals are uh, a homage to Epictetus, uh, trying to, to make him again a well-known philosopher, and uh, at the same time, however, updating and hopefully a little bit improving uh, Stoic philosophy for the 21st century. Thank you for what you're doing, Epictetus. It, it kind of resonated the same way, perhaps, that resonated for you, that, that sense of humor. It's very, very important, though, to have. We see a lot of philosophers, they tend to be too serious about everything, <laughs> but he wasn't. <laughs> One of the passages that caught my attention, it's in your book, it said, death is not bad because you won't be there when it comes. <laughs> I mean, that, that <laughs> caught my attention immediately when I read it. So true. Yeah, and that is uh, that's uh, that's an observation that was again uh, is common among different traditions. In this particular case, not only the Stoics but also one of their main rivals during the Hellenistic period uh, in ancient Rome, and those those were the Epicureans. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics thought that that we are misguided when we are afraid of death. We might be concerned about how we're going to die because, of course, that could be a painful yes, experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although the Stoics will go on immediately and say, yeah, but even if it's painful, it doesn't last long. <laughs> so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> you know, there's a point, right. There's a point there. I mean, at least compared to the rest of your life, it doesn't right. last long. So I was like, you know. It's okay. But more importantly, they thought there is really no point in worrying about what happens after you're, you're dead because there's no you there uh, because your, your uh, self has been, you know, sort of reabsorbed by the universal, uh, you know, in the, cos in the cosmos. We, we are back, you know, in terms of our matter disperses again in the universe, which is where it came from. One of my favorite uh, modern authors is the astronomer Carl Sagan, who famously said that we are literally stardust because everything that uh, all the elements or all the molecules that make up our body were at some point in the past inside an exploding star, mm -hmm. a supernova. So it's it's yeah. a beautiful thought, and it's, yeah. and it's true. See that? It's not just beautiful. It also happens to be true. Mm -hmm. um, the Stoics think that when you die, it kind of happens in reverse. So your body goes back to you know your, the, the the rest of the universe, but there is no you as a conscious entity mm -hmm. that feels. And therefore, if there is, if that's not there, then why are you worried? What, what, what is your problem? And, and they say, especially, both the historic and Epicureans uh, say, especially, do not listen to priests that want to, to mm. scare you and control you by telling you that there is a whole awful afterlife that is waiting for you. It's like, it's just not, not the case. You, there is no you in the afterlife. And therefore, don't mm. worry. Just focus on this life. This is the only one you got. And, and you need to focus here in the here and now because that is where life is. It's not in the future. It's not in the past. It's the question here. that arises is um, what about if there was no you throughout life? 
we just miss that in a way, right? To merge with life now, actually, and become life itself. I like a, a phrase that says, I think somebody wrote, I don't know who said on the podcast, I don't have a life, I am life. Oh, that's nice. That's interesting. Yeah. That resonated true to yeah. me for some reason. In your book, you also mentioned other topics. For some reason, I'm really, those topics on death kind of uh, catch my attention every time. You said, everything you think you own is not actually yours. At some point, you will lose them in one fashion or another. And then you also have a message, a lesson of meditate frequently on adversity and especially on death. And then another one you say, losing loved ones is painful, but you should keep in mind that it is natural and it happens to others as well. Develop a sense of equanimity about it. So that peace in Buddhism, it's very much um, one of the greatest um, practices, equanimity, um, inner peace. Yes. I like especially the bit about, you know, we don't own anything because we, mm, we yeah. especially in modern 21st century Western and particular American society, we are obsessed with owning things. Right. And we use the word right. my all the time, right? Yeah. It's like, it's my house, my car, my TV, my <laughs> wife, my children. It's like, my life. That would be my life. Yeah. Slow down. <laughs> you actually don't own any of those things. All of those things are, as the Stoics would say, on loan from the universe. Yes. And the universe, mm. the, the interesting bit that Epictetus calls, calls our attention to is the universe can, rec can recall the loan at any moment for any reason, and it's not up to you to question it. Enjoy what you have right now because it's part of life. Um, it's like, <laughs> it, in fact, in, at some point he uses the metaphor of think of your life as going through uh, being a guest in a hotel. <sighs> while you are in the hotel, when you are in the room, that is, in a sense, uh, your room. But not really. It has been other people's rooms before, room before, and it will be other people's room after. But while you're there, sure, use it by all, by all means, right? Go to the restaurant and, and eat. Go to the bar and have a drink. But those are not yours in any sense. You're just passing, passing through. And your goal is to, on the one hand, enjoy what, you, what, what uh, the hotel offers or what the, the bar offers, what the restaurant offers. But at the same time also leave it at least in the same shape, if not better, than when you got in. You don't, you don't, we, don't, we don't think very highly of people who trash their hotel rooms. <laughs> you know, it's not um, a good yeah. thing to do. <laughs> and yeah. the same goes for life in, in, in itself, according to Epictetus. You just don't, don't make a mess and leave it for other people to clean it up. You know, you clean up your stuff. I love the way yeah, in your book you, keep, you say that a lot. You relate to this, whatever this is, life, what we call life, as um, an adventure, like being travelers. We're just traveling here. And that is so true. And that's another comment you made that's interesting. You mentioned a book about good and bad, making a mess out of life. Sometimes it's, it seems like nature itself does it too, right? It's like it can become chaotic. And that's part of what the natural process is. No one can change that. In your book, you say something that relates to that idea. Nothing in the world is evil or, for that matter, good. The world just is. Yes, exactly. That's also a fundamental Stoic idea, which has a very important consequence. If you actually internalize the notion that nothing, including other people, is evil, 
then you approach everything, including other people, with equanimity. Uh, when somebody does something that irritates you or somebody does something that is even, even something that is unjust, etc., your focus is not to put labels. Your point should not be on putting labels. Oh, that was evil. You are an evil person. The focus should be, can I do something to help out here? Right. That's what the Stoics ask themselves. You know, is okay. There is a problem here. There is an issue. There is an injustice. There is whatever it is. Can I do something to help? Can I do something to, however small, to improve the situation? Then beyond that, attaching label to things, labels to things, and say that's evil. That's that's good. It's like, what what purpose is that? It's just at that point you become attached, you become focused on the label as opposed to what's really going on and what you can do about it. I tend to think that whatever comes, even the judgments, if whatever we perceive and have already assigned as bad, it's also life happening. I always go back to this idea. It might be a practice, which I don't call practice. It's just like uh, being aware of that, that this is unconditioned, unconditional love, as I call it. So there's everything that's happening. It's just happening. And why not? Everything's possible in a way. <laughs> I know yeah. it's very open, you know, right? The, this no, ideas, that's right. But, that's right. But you just reminded me actually of a, of a cartoon that I saw many, many years ago. Uh, so this, I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut, and I walk into my uh, mentor's office, and he has this cartoon that is kind of framed. And uh, you remember that the, the, this, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but this was a cartoon that was part of a series called uh, Haggard the Horrible, which was a, a Viking uh, having, you know, different adventures. And so the first scene in the cartoon has Hagar on a ship and the ship is in the middle of a big storm and he's being, you know, thrown around in the storm. Eventually he, uh, the, he has a shipwreck and he lands on a deserted island and he looks up at the sky and he says, why me? And in the last panel, the sky opens up and answers, why not? <laughs> right. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not you? Who, who are you? <laughs> Your life. Exactly. Why, why uh, not you? Why, why do you think you're special? <laughs> yes, right. That might be the biggest message. Yeah. Thinking that we are special, we're important. I mean, as these individualized um, particles of energy of life that never resonated through to me and now especially that if there is something that there is miracle this will be it being here now talking to you just in this moment being the moment now this happening this is to me it's the reason to be grateful isn't it in a way but not just grateful it's deeper than that it's um magic almost <laughs> at play I would love to talk to you for another, uh, forever, really, because you're not just somebody who has explored this adventure here called life. You keep doing that. You're still open to to the exploration of who else, whatever comes, whatever, even in this podcast today, because this is what I do to my guests a lot of time. Um, I challenge them in that sense of being open to life itself. Because um, what do we know, really? Not much. Yeah. I love the idea of the unknown, really. This is the unknown itself. This is the absolute unknown. And it's beautiful. I have a few more questions for you, the ending questions. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? I think uh, we've covered at least some of the important points. So go ahead with the, with the final questions. Yeah, let me ask you this one. How do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? To me, being successful means that I'm getting a little better 
uh, at this business of life that I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more empathetic toward people, um, more useful to the people that I love, uh, and perhaps even to, to strangers, that sort of stuff. That, that's a measure of success. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with material mm -hmm. objects. It has nothing to do with money, career, uh, what you think you own, uh, and that sort of stuff. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life as of today? Uh, that I don't have as much control of over things as I would have, I, 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 I would like, or as I was brought up, I guess, to 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 think that it's uh, it's important to have all this control over things. Uh, I still have a hard time really letting go of this notion of control. I, I still uh, find myself in you know struggling a little bit about it, but I certainly got better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to me, that sounds like true liberation, if there is such a thing. <laughs> Knowing that we have no control, just kind of, yeah, giving up that notion that we do. And if you knew you would die soon, meaning losing, leaving the body, would you make any change or do anything in a different way? Uh, that's a good question. In fact, it's a question that the Stoics ask themselves a lot. Uh, one of the early, early Stoic, Roman Stoics, Seneca, asks himself, you know, if, uh, he says, imagine that this is going to be the last day of your life. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> what, how are you going to spend it? Well, I, I guess that. I would do some things differently, but not dramatically. You know, certainly I wouldn't be spending time answering email or, yeah. or, or posting <laughs> yes. on Facebook. That's for, that's for sure. Um, yes, but, but good. But other than that, I would probably be spending time doing the kind of things that I find meaningful. And those are either writing, for instance, yeah. uh, talking to my friends or my family. Um, if I had, depending on how much time we're talking about, that I knew that I had available traveling uh, to see places that I haven't seen yet. Those are the kinds of things that I would do uh, if I knew that, let's say, I was going to die you know, in a month or a couple of months or whatever it is. Uh, so not not necessarily radical things, but I would, I would purge the stuff that is less important, that is right. less, uh, you know, meaningful and focus on the... Now, of course, one can obviously ask the question, well, why don't you do that anyway? Right, right. Well, yeah. because yeah. I got to answer my emails from time to time. You know, <laughs> yes, I, I have tell a job. me about it. <laughs> I have a job. And, you know, part of my responsibility is, is to answer my emails. So, so you have to... But if, you get, if you're getting close to the end of your life, say, you know what, I think I've done enough of that and, uh, and now I can focus on, a, on, on, on more meaningful things. And my last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I don't know if I can get to three. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that I exist. I know, I, know, I, I know that in some sense I exist. I mean, as uh, the, the uh, 15th century philosopher, 16th century philosopher René Descartes put it, you know, I think, therefore I am. Uh, I, I buy that. I think that because I'm a, I'm a sentient being, I can articulate thoughts, uh, I must exist. Whether I exist as I think I exist, mm. uh, you know, with right. a body in, in, a, in a particular room, et cetera, or, right. or in some other way, that's a different issue. But I, but I agree with Descartes that I know pretty much for sure that I exist. Other than that, not much else. Not for mm -hmm. sure. I think I, I, I have opinions and I have uh, judgments, well-informed opinions, I, I hope, about a bunch yeah. of other things. Yeah. Um, but absolute knowledge, mm, that's pretty much it. The only thing I know is that I exist for now. 
I love how genuine you are, Massimo, how natural you are. I go back to nature as a reference. Thank you so much for your intention to help others, first to help yourself and then pass that on. The work you do and answer your emails, <laughs> that's part of that intention. And everything else that can be felt, natural energies that could be felt today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Uh, there's one place where almost everything is sort of summarized or linked to, and that is figsinwinter.blog. And figs in winter is a phrase that Epictetus uses where he says, you know, don't uh, wish for things that you cannot have at the moment. Enjoy them when they're actually there. Otherwise, you're a fool because you are like somebody who wants figs in winter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the sense of humor is just great. <laughs> we need that. Boy, we need that. Thank you so much, Massimo, again. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn more about Professor Massimo Pigliucci and his work, please visit figsinwinter.blog. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. <laughs>